Now there's a brand new web page, especially for this podcast. The Politocrat Daily Podcast can now be found on thepolitocrat.com. A brand new page that centralizes all of the places that you can listen to this podcast. The major platforms and many others at thepolitocrat.com. Lots of content that you can see there right now and every single day. So subscribe now to the Politocrat Daily Podcast and make sure you visit thepolitocrat.com. Thank you. Welcome to the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Monday, January the 11th, 2021. On this episode of The Politocrat, a look at some of what is going on with nine days left. Where do we stand as a country here in the United States of America? These times indeed are testing. Plus, excerpts from the book, They Thought They Were Free, by Milton Mayer. And a look at why 60 Minutes is not at all what it used to be. And what our response must be. All of that. Coming up next. Welcome back. So today, there's going to be a few things that I want to cover on this episode. One of them is that we are now nine days away from the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And that is going to be the longest nine days that we've had here in the United States for some time. It's going to feel like nine months. And I think that it is important now to really um, take each day at a time to get to January the 20th. And I should say this to people as well. It's a chilling thing, but it's a true thing. The people who committed the acts of terrorist violence in that terror attack on the United States Capitol building last Wednesday will be returning for seconds. Now, it may not be in Washington, D.C. where they return for seconds, but it may be in a town near you. It may be at a state capitol building near you. This is not something that is said to frighten. And I know, however, that it will frighten some of you. This is being said for instructive purposes. So please exercise care and caution. Law authorities are actually dealing with these things. 
There is extra security that is going to be present, I think, over the next few weeks in cities. If people don't realize that these kinds of things are going to be connected, a la the Nashville terror attack that happened just a week or two ago. Remember that? Some white racist blew himself up and blew up this basically a whole block or at least a whole building in Nashville on a weekend, I believe it was. It was last, not this past weekend, but the weekend before or thereabouts. And no one was around in the building, but he was killed. He killed himself, I believe, and did a lot of damage to property. Do not think that these things are not connected. As I said in an episode a few days ago, the plot to kidnap and kill Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer happened in October. It was unveiled. The plot was unveiled in October. And if you think that somehow the fact that there were guys, terrorists, in the House and Senate chambers with zip ties, these plastic handcuffs, if you don't think that that was also part of a plot to kidnap and kill politicians, and that is not part of the continuation of this particular terrorist attack, these threats to Governor Whitmer, you're absolutely mistaken. What we have here is a concerted effort. It is organized. It is orchestrated. There's news that Ginny Thomas, the spouse of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, paid for buses to bus some of these people into Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, this is paid for other things, maybe some ammunition, you know, guns, whatever. This is really horrible. This actually, as I said before, this is an inside job and this is a well-financed job. And not only is it well-financed, it's well-organized and orchestrated. Backed by several um, people who are quote-unquote mainstream Republicans. This is deeply disturbing. You have Republican Party members getting on the House floor last week and championing this. Oh, my constituents are right outside this building. And that was from the freshman Senate, uh, freshman uh, House member, Lauren Bobert. This is the person who advertised in her campaign and used guns as a fix as a as a staple of her campaign this is where we are in this country the rhetoric is becoming more and more violent and it harkens back to the 1860s and you know what happened soon thereafter you know not too long after the civil war ended we know what happened or you know we should know what happened with Lincoln, I'm trusting that you do know. The climate is not healthy right now. I just smell it in the air, you know? Smell it in the air. 
that the atmosphere is not healthy at the moment. And I'm not just talking about climate change or air pollution. I'm talking about mentally and psychically and physically in your bones and in your heart. You can feel that something isn't right. It permeates. And that's what happens after what we saw last week. And I do want to say one thing here. The American public must wake up now. Because if you do not wake up now, you will never wake up. Or if you do wake up, you'll wake up and you'll be seeing people walking down the street in Nazi uniforms. Do not think that that's an exaggeration of mine, because it's not. And if you don't think that we can return to those kinds of days, we can do that very easily in this country. When you have a pandemic like the one we have now, that's taking so many lives, that's destroying so many lives in the way they lived, that's destroying jobs, that's destroying infrastructures of families and the economics of the families and everything else, coupled with the fact that the economy stinks, coupled with the fact that you have got no food, coupled with the fact that you're still waiting for a stimulus check, It's so easy to slip into these really bad places. And I've always maintained that the United States of America has long been a fascist country. If you go back to 1961, it was something that Eisenhower warned about with the military industrial complex. And that is fascist. I mean, that's obviously fascist. The military-industrial complex is fascist. It represents all of that. Merger of corporate and state interests and, you know, the weaponry, corporate. I mean, it's just, it's really troubling stuff. So please, you've got to wake up and tell your friends that the time to fight back against fascism is now to fight back against it. I'm not talking about getting violent. I'm talking about information, sharing, and really sharing information and explaining and educating people because this is where these battles are going to be ultimately fought. These battles are going to be fought in these places. It's going to be at your schools. It's going to be the academic world there in your schools. It's going to be in other places too, but it's going to be in a situation where you're exchanging ideas or not exchanging them. Maybe you're um, disagreeing. But with nine days to go until we get to January the 20th, it's very important to keep your eyes on the prize. Keep yourself focused. Because these next nine days are not going to be completely filled with cherries and top of icing. That's not going to be it. You're going to see and hear in the news, I'm sure, a lot of up and down things, mostly down. So just be careful, please be careful. Um, I would avoid any kinds of crowds. You know, there are there is news about people trying to um, do this in other states and other cities and state capital buildings. And the country has to be prepared to fight back against this and also to make sure there's the proper policing and security and training. Otherwise, we're in real trouble. It's incredible. I keep thinking back just a minute 
one minute was all that was the difference between those doors being sealed and those doors not being sealed and the people, um, you know, these terrorists who came in there to break the doors down. I mean, it's just incredible stories. Eugene Goodman is an example of this, a black police officer who I did mention in an episode earlier last week. He is a U.S. Capitol Police officer, and he saved a lot of people's lives in the United States Senate as it was just him completely outnumbered by a white terrorist mob, a mob, you know, a bunch of white terrorists who were climbing up the steps and they were coming after him. And what happened was, is that Eugene Goodman took a quick look to his left, realized that there was nobody outside manning the Senate doors where the senators were in the chamber. I mean, nobody was there. If he had decided for some weird reason to go down that, go down there and make that fateful turn, it could have been goodnight Irene for all of those senators or many of them. Some of these people were, again, they were there to kill. Instead, this brave police officer, this U.S. Capitol Police officer, Eugene Goodman, decided instead to go the opposite way and have them follow him the wrong way, all the while backing up. I mean, it was a really disturbing bit of video, but it was a good piece of video that was shot by Igor Bobich. And as a result, Eugene Goodman saved the lives of countless dozens of United States senators. It was an act of heroism and bravery, one for which Eugene Goodman should receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom from the incoming president, Joe Biden. There's no question about it. Not only that, I I think that uh, he should have some kind of other commendation. I mean, he risked his own life to save many others. And that's something that you cannot overlook. And just one other thing, you know, to reiterate, we have to stay vigilant and stay alert really have to stay vigilant and stay alert and make sure that you wear a mask. Please wear a mask. Put one on before you leave indoors. No matter where indoors is for you, please make sure that whenever you're indoors, put the mask on just before you go outside. Do not wait to be outside and then you put the mask on when you see someone coming towards you. That is not how this is done. We have to change the way we approach all of these things. So there you have it. Nine more days until Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are sworn in. Nine more days. It's going to be some kind of ride, but I believe we will make it through to the other side. of thousands of votes and then late in the evening or early in the morning boom these explosions of bullshit and all of a sudden 
All of a sudden, it started to happen. Welcome back. That was Donald Trump on Wednesday of last week at the rally that was not far away from the U.S. Capitol building. And he used that choice word, a word that describes his last four years in the White House, among other words that one could use for him and his tenure and the kind of person he is. But this episode is not about him because he has nine more days in the position that he is in. And maybe fewer than that, if the House of Representatives ever decided to get themselves together and just get this done, impeach this so-called man. Now, I'm hearing things about some congresspersons being scared, being afraid of their, and fearful of their safety, and things of this nature. If this is true, and I came across a tweet that had reflected upon, you know, someone seeing a tweet, but rather, that reflected upon this, about seeing a tweet that from a reporter that had said that there are some Congress people who are afraid for their safety. Now, that's completely understood, given the very traumatic events of last week. But if that is now going to be, and again, it's some, not everybody, but if that is going to be the thing, that now people are afraid for their safety, and so therefore they may not vote on impeachment at all, Haven't the terrorists already won? Haven't they already won? That's really a very, very problematic place for us to be in. If you're saying that you may not vote for impeachment at all, Never mind the amount of days left. That's really problematic. That's really problematic. He has to be impeached. And if you won't do it, there are other Congress people who will do it. And must do it. story is now that there are more calls on Mike Pence to do the right thing and that Mike Pence, who is the soon to be, very soon to be outgoing, and he is going to be the outgoing vice president. Um, In fact, he is in the next, you know, he's an outgoing vice president right now. To utilize the 25th Amendment. I mean, I guess there's enough cabinet members left, although they are jumping the 
sinking uh, version of the second Titanic than they had been for the last few days. I do not know whether or not Mike Pence is going to do this. Conflicting reports has suggested one way that he was not going to, but more recently there have been reports that have said that he has not completely ruled it out. Will he use the 25th Amendment or won't he? Well, the country cannot afford to wait much longer. It is very interesting to me how there is all this deliberation on impeachment of a person who's committed an impeachable offense every single day, basically, of these last four years. That people are debating it one way or another. And that you could have impeached him, as I said in previous episodes, on any given day of any one of these last four years. And yet now, there is such debate when I really don't think there needs to be. There's such debate when there was no real worry in the Senate at all in terms of ramming through a United States Supreme Court pick. They did that just about eight days before the November 2020 general election. Never mind that that had never ever been done before, ramming through a U.S. Supreme Court justice pick during an election season. That had never happened in the history of the country. But since Mitch McConnell has been majority leader, there have been all kinds of things that had never ever happened before. And that is why I am glad, as I'm sure many of you listening are, that Mitch McConnell is no longer, as of nine or ten days from now, going to be the majority leader in the Senate. David Cicilline has a story in the New York Times today. He wrote an op-ed about why the articles of impeachment are being introduced. I will link to that article so that you can read it. David Cicilline is the congressman from Rhode Island. He's a Democrat. He has written one of those articles of impeachment or the article of impeachment that is going to be introduced. He co-wrote it with, I think, a couple of other uh, congresspeople as well. So... Let's just get this going, shall we? We don't need to be giving Mike Pence any more time. I mean, it's as if they're saying, come on, Mike, one more day. You've got one more day, and then tomorrow. One more, will they say that? One more day, Mike, one more day. We cannot go there. Excuse me. <clears throat> Goodness. We, <clears throat> pardon me, everybody. We cannot go there. We cannot go there. This is where Institutions have to be strong. And the way institutions are strong is when the people in them, the people representing them, are strong. That's the key.
That's the key. The institutions aren't just these shapeless, wordless, blockless entities of stone. They are human beings. And the human beings are, what I would say, in an honor system to do what they have been charged to do. Not just by the people who voted them in, but by the letter of the Constitution and the constitutional oath and obligations that they have. And if they are obligated to impeach in a situation where it is so, so clear that they have been flagrant constitutional violations, flagrant high crimes and misdemeanors, then they must act. And they must act now. Don't delay. Impeach today. Welcome back. So right now I'm going to turn into bedtime story reader. Although this is not a bedtime story that you can go to bed to or fall asleep to. Because it's a one that will keep you awake. <laughs> um, but I shouldn't be laughing because these events are applicable to what is going on in the United States right this second. Here on Monday, January the 11th, 2021, I want to bring this to your attention because I've actually done this before. I've read from excerpts of the book I'm about to read from on a couple of occasions before, maybe at least one I know for sure. Way back, it might have been April or May or June, if not, well, it was sometime last year in 2020 that I had read out some excerpts from a book that is one I've been calling upon people to read for quite some time now. I've done so on this podcast, and I've also done so on social media on Twitter at the popcorn R E E L. The book in question is called They Thought They Were Free The Germans, 1933 to 45. By Milton Mayer. M-I-L-T-O-N, last name M-A-Y-E-R. This is a very important book, and I think that it is one that fits these times chillingly and very well. I had read excerpts from this book, not only on this podcast last year, but I had also, over the last four years, on a few occasions, read excerpts on video and posted them to Twitter at my Twitter account, the Popcorn R-E-E-L, to really underline and underscore the severity of the 
situation that the United States could find itself in. And I think that since I had done that, I decided, I think at some point, probably in 2020, um, to stop doing so, to stop reading these things, because it seemed ever so clear to me that we were going down that road. And not only going down the road, we had become that road. And I've always maintained that the United States is a fascist country and has been so for an awfully long time. And I think I've alluded to this before. I spoke about this with even the kinds of things Eisenhower was saying when he talked about the military-industrial complex back in 1961 in his outgoing farewell address as president. In fact, we are coming up, I think it's going to be um, sometime this week, or actually at the beginning of next week, um, maybe Sunday, uh, but sometime in the next week, seven days, we are going to come across that 60th anniversary of the military-industrial complex address, as it's known, at least some people call it. The farewell address from Dwight D. Eisenhower is one that should be studied, and it has been studied. In fact, documentaries have been made around it. One of them is called, I believe, um, is it Why We Fight? I forget. Um, I'm not quite sure why we go to war or something. Um, a documentary from 2006, but in any event, you really do have to watch that farewell address, and I will be talking about that address. I have talked about it before here. But now that we are going through all of this, and I had stopped reading these things out because somehow I felt that they would be redundant. Somehow I felt that I would get a response from some that you do get when you get films that portray events that are currently going on. In fact, it's something that I raised with the Oscar-winning documentary feature filmmaker Alex Gibney last month when I asked him, you know, about his documentary Totally Under Control, which was about the coronavirus pandemic. And I asked him, you know, Alex, uh, did you ever give any thought to the kind of reaction that you might get from your film when you make it could very well be, well, why do I need to see a film that documents the pandemic that I am already currently living through right this second? Why would I want to go and spend time seeing or watching this film, even in the comfort of my own home, when I'm living through it right now in reality, in real life? Why would I need to now sit down and watch a movie? And we talked about that. And you can listen to that interview that I did um, with Alex Gibney uh, last month on this podcast. I believe it was uh, December the 10th or 11th of 2020. You can listen to that. It's a pretty good conversation that we had. But that was just over a month ago. And since the events of last week, I've actually thought that it has become necessary to read 
to remind people that this is not a first-time event, not in the U.S. and not in the world. And there were ways that we responded to all of these things in the past as people, as human beings, whether it be here in the U.S. when the British did this in 1812 and burned down, or burned at least, the U.S. Capitol and burned and destroyed the White House around that same time. Maybe 1814 that was with the White House or something like that. But the, the Capitol and the war, you know, the, the 1812 war. War of 1812. It's 209 years ago. We cannot forget our history is my point here. We cannot forget our history. And since I'm somebody who thinks that's very important, and I know that you do too, I am going to read now from this book, They Thought They Were Free, by Milton Mayer. I would like for you to consider for these next few moments what it is I'm reading from and about where we are right now in this very fragile time in the United States of America where the pen, the pendulum could literally swing either one way or the other. This is from the chapter of the book titled, But Then It Was Too Late. What no one seemed to notice, said a colleague of mine, a philologist, was the ever-widening gap after 1933 between the government and the people. Just think how very wide this gap was to begin with here in Germany. And it always became wider. You know, it doesn't make people close to their government to be told that this is a people's government, a true democracy, or to be enrolled in civilian defense, or even to vote. All this has little, really, nothing to do with knowing one is governing. What happened here was the gradual habituation of the people, little by little, to being governed by surprise, to receiving decisions deliberated in secret, to believing that the situation was so complicated that the government had to act on information which the people could not understand, or so dangerous that even if the people could understand it, it could not be released because of national security. And their sense of identification with Hitler, their trust in him, made it easier to widen this gap and reassured those who would otherwise have worried about it. This separation of government from people, this widening of the gap, took place so gradually 
and so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the crises and reforms, real reforms too, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. That's an excerpt from the chapter, but then it was too late from the book. They thought they were free by Milton Mayer. It's a really good book. I'll read one or two excerpts in the next few minutes. But this book is a really good book. It was a man, Milton Mayer, the author, who interviewed 10 Germans who were ordinary Germans who did different kinds of trades in their life. They were um, bakers, they were this, they were that. They had these different occupations. And none of them, as far as I remember when I read it, were actual Nazis. But they all did slip into this kind of fascism and barbarism and genocidal behavior. I mean, I don't, none of them actually um, killed anybody. But they went along with all of the things that happened in Nazi Germany. And in fact, Milton Mayer dedicates this book to, quote, his 10 Nazi friends, to my Nazi friends. That's what he said. If you read the book, uh, near the beginning of the book, he dedicates it to these 10 people that he interviewed. And he interviewed them a few years after the end of World War II or thereabouts. As I remember, it's been a long time since I've read this. The point is, is that um, the book is really designed, in my view, as a cautionary tale for future generations, subsequent generations. And the book is a very important one. It's written in that very conversational style because it's the interviews that Milton Mayer is having with these 10 people who lived through all of this in Germany, who lived through Germany being one of the leaders in industrialized success, uh, industrialized society that was so, so successful back in the 1930s, had led the way in technologies and engineering, you know, in all kinds of uh, of things, you know, they really led the way, and all of that, even with all of that strength, all of that somehow became. Let's follow this guy from Austria. It was just remarkable and very dangerous, and so this book chronicles that, and these ten men—they're all men. Didn't, he didn't interview any women. And if he did, they're certainly not in this book. And these men talk about living through the times of Germany going from where it was to all of a sudden, literally overnight, pretty much, 
going into this fascist, genocidal nation that ended up terrorizing and murdering so many millions of people, really in a blink of an eye. And these 10 men just living through that and not doing much of anything about it, really. That's no spoiler alert. That's the the good German syndrome, right? The good German. I don't even know if it's even a syndrome, but it's the good German. So I just think that it's really important to um, lend a thought to this. Because when people say things like, especially American politicians, who should know better and who do know better, say things like, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. Well, this is who we are. And nothing should ever be said to be anything different. No one should say anything different. The people who say things like, this is not who we are, are terrible students of history. Or they are just conscientiously stupid. Anybody who examines the history of the United States and further beyond that, the history of America knows that this is exactly who we've been and who we are and have been this way for hundreds of years. People all over the world have studied the United States. People all over the world have studied American history. And they know that the United States was born into violence. They know that the United States was created out of violence. They know that the Native Americans, long before that, had been massacred and genocided. They know that black people were forcibly brought from the African continent to the Americas, to other parts of the world. Dropped off in Liverpool, dropped off in Southampton in England, dropped off in other parts of the world, South America, dropped off in the Caribbean, dropped off in the United States of America. It wasn't even called that then. It was called, well, something else. It was not called America. The British had, had uh, at this point, it was, the, it, was, it was the 13 colonies, essentially. But the point is, even before that, I mean, the British had controlled this. Native Americans had been absolutely genocided. And black people had been forcibly kidnapped, brought here in chains. Murdered for nothing, a lot of them. Some of them decided to save their own lives by ending their lives and the lives of their children in the middle passage. Native Americans on their own land were genocided. Black people who were enslaved were murdered and lynched. People after that murdered and lynched. 
burned alive in the United States of America by white violent mobs, terrorists. In fact, I'm going to stop calling them mobs. They are terrorists and have been for centuries. So the next time you hear a politician telling you that this is not who we are as a country here in the United States, please make sure that you direct either a choice word at them or you write a letter or a tweet or an email or make a phone call to 202-224-3121 or 202-225-3121 and tell them that they must study their history. America is exactly what it is and has been violent. Welcome back. I do want to read uh, just a bit more. Um, there's going to be, I think I'm gonna, I should make this the last one, but um, I don't know. I'll, I'll read something here and, and then make the final point that I really want to make. And that's going to be about the media because the media is going to be extremely important, not just these next nine days, but the media is going to be important throughout these next four years when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in nine days time take the oath of office and it looks as if very much right now like they are going to do it in front of and on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building which still I must admit to you gives me some pause it really does it gives me some pause and I think that a lot of people are nervous about that um, even though there's going to be the utmost security, I, I, I really am still concerned about that. Um, and I think a lot of people on social media are as well. I have seen some tweets about this, um, a number of people who have raised concerns as well about whether or not they should be sworn in in the U.S. Capitol, uh, or, excuse me, on the steps of outside on the U.S. Capitol building. I don't know. Maybe maybe they should, though. Maybe they should, because, again, uh, as I said earlier, um, you cannot cower to these individuals. And it's not so much cowering as it is saying to people, hey, look, you know what? Government is going to continue on. I mean, it's exactly actually what Mitch McConnell said last week on January 6th. When he said the Senate is going to do its business and we're going to make sure that this process gets completed today. And he said it with an air of defiance. This is Mitch McConnell, who has done more to destroy the United States Senate than anybody. Especially over these last 40 years. And he was standing there saying, we're going to get this process done and we're going to confirm the next president. And of course, he made it clear. So this is what's going on, folks. We have to continue the wheels of government turning. And then what we have to do 
is continue to push our agenda. None of these things stops. We have to continue to push for the $2,000 stimulus check. None of these things stops. I think one of the things, as I before I read one uh, this uh, passage, one of the things that the media has done, and I will get to the media, I promise, before the end of this episode, is to focus you exclusively on one issue at a time and one issue at a time only. This has been done now for a number of years, and it's been done principally on cable news media, 24 hours a day and seven days a week, where if some event happens in the world, usually though that event is here in the United States, there is a laser-like focus on it, and usually a very close-up focus, not a pullback for a wide shot, if you will, of the whole enterprise that's going on around it, the whole thing, the scenery, the background, what's going on in, in this corner, that corner. These, no, 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 no. They zoom straight in, right? And like a dog on a bone, they gnaw and gnaw and gnaw and gnaw at the very same pinpointed part of an issue for hours and hours and hours. It's really mind-numbing. That's what the corporate news media is on 24-hour cable. The media is going to have to, as I've said before, exercise some responsibility here. And in some ways, it's kind of comical to say that because the media is not going to exercise anything but a desire for more dollars from advertisers and a desire to foment more ratings. That's the, really the things that they're going to do. And if responsibility is involved in that, huh, maybe. But if responsibility is not involved in that, in order to get ratings, tr trust me, they will drop any pretense of trying to be responsible. I need not see any more videos of people getting killed. I'm fed up of it. In fact, this is, and I haven't been watching the media until, well, one thing, and I'll get to it later. But the media's got to exercise responsibility. I know that they document things and you have people um, documenting things and they have to be seen at a certain extent and to an extent. We have to see this. We cannot look away from it. But after a while, when you are repeating that same image, just like when you repeat the image of a black person being murdered by the police or by some white mob and you replay that over and over and over again, it does untold damage to the psyche. And it also encourages and also sends this message that it is okay to do these things to people. And just as Jane Elliott said last June, when I had a conversation with her on this podcast, either the people who control the media know this or they don't know any better than this. And consider the source. They're the ones running this. So if you've got these rich white men doing running this, would there be any surprise at all as to why you're seeing black people being murdered on a loop on video on their cable networks? 
But then, it was too late. I continue on from the book, They Thought They Were Free, by Milton Mayer. Nazism gave us some dreadful, fundamental things to think about. We were decent people and kept us so busy with the continuous changes and crises and so fascinated, yes, fascinated, by the machinations of the national enemies, without and within, that we had no time to think about these dreadful things that were growing little by little, all around us, unconsciously, I suppose, we were grateful. Who wants to think? To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me. Unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us had ever had occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must someday lead to. One, no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in his field sees the corn growing. One day, it is over his head. How is this to be avoided among ordinary men, even highly educated ordinary men? Frankly, I do not know. I do not see, even now, many, many times since it all happened, I have pondered that pair of great maxims, principis obsta and finem respice. Resist the beginnings and consider the end. But one must foresee the end in order to resist, to even see the beginnings. One must foresee the end clearly and certainly. And how is this to be done by men, ordinary men, or even extraordinary men? Things might have changed here before they went as far as they did. They didn't, but they might have. And everyone counts on that might. Your little men, your Nazi friends, were not against National Socialism in principle. Men like me, who were, are the greater offenders, because, not because we knew better, that would be too much to say, but because we sensed better. Pastor Niemöller, 
spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself and said that when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist and so he did nothing. And then they attacked the socialists and he was a little uneasier, but still, he was not a socialist and he did nothing. And then the schools, the press, the Jews, and so on. And he was always uneasier. But still, he did nothing. And then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman, and he did something. But then, it was too late. So I'm going to read one more excerpt from this great book, which I really strongly recommend to you. It's called They Thought They Were Free. It's by Min Milton Mayer. They thought, T-H-O-U-G-H-T, They Thought They Were Free, F-R-E-E, -E, by Milton Mayer. It's a really important book. Um, it's a good read. It's engrossing. It's interesting. Um, I think it, it flows very well in terms of um, how these stories are pieced together, how they're told. It's woven together very well. Uh, and the quotes are very vivid. Now, this book was first published in 1955, uh, 1956, I forget, with one of those two dates. 1955, I think it was. And the book was published, again, that's 10 years after the end of World War II. And so... Then there's something to look at here. The paperback edition was 1966. And um, 1966, of course, was a very interesting year, to say the least, here in the United States. Um, at that point, we were, what, four years removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis, three years removed from the assassination of JFK, and one year removed from the assassination of Malcolm X. So that book came about in the paperback edition, at least. This book came about amidst all of that, those events that had just passed. And there were, of course, more horrific events to come. The Vietnam War was just, you know, was, was in the, you know, was getting underway too, at least for the Americans it was. It was just about around that time or thereafter. Um, I don't want to get the date wrong, but then, you know, the, the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident was, I believe, in 60, I don't know which, it was in the mid-60s. Uh, I, again, I, I haven't, um, my memory on this is not the sharpest. Um, so there you have that. It could have been 65, it could have been 67, it could have been 66. It's one of those years, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, um, around there. <laughs> but look, I don't want to, um, get too incisive on the date here, although dates are very important. Um, as you know, I, I talk about dates all the time here because they matter. Um, history matters. Facts matter. The truth matters. And we've got to continue to sound that alarm, continue, uh, continue rather to sound that trumpet to really, um, I hate to use any word that has his name in it, but we need to sound the bugle on this. We really do. Sound the horn. And we have to continue to give out facts, put out the truth, and emphasize history so that we never repeat it. 
And we've got to keep doing that wherever we are in this world. Wherever we are. Please do not let lies permeate. When you can do something, please do it. Please speak up. Please say something. I know sometimes it's difficult and it is not easy to do. And it can very well depend on who you are that makes that task to speak up and speak out easier or harder. But where you can, please do so. There are people who've risked their lives in doing so. Please speak up and speak out. It's so important. We cannot be silent. It's what Pastor Niemöller said in the excerpt that I just read out. First, I, you know, first they came for this person. I didn't say anything. Then they came for that person. I wasn't that person, so they, I didn't have to say anything. And largely, quite frankly, I think white Americans need to be the ones who have to start speaking up. And it can't just be the predominant younger generation that spoke out during this past summer and fall. It has to be many, many more people of all age groups in the white community who stand up and make themselves heard. That's how you strengthen the society when a majority of its members or one of the larger classes or larger, larger groups actually starts to consistently speak out and speak up. More of them, not just the usual groups, but more of them. And it must be sustained. These next nine days are going to be critical. And so, again, we are situ situated on a tightrope at the moment. And we are walking across it. And that tightrope has nine more days of walking left on it. Until we get to the other side. And so we have to keep walking and we have to do it carefully. For those of us who cannot walk, we have to keep thinking and we must keep doing that clearly. For those of us who cannot think, we must stay alive. We must be. Because there really is no alternative. We are at a critical moment. I want to read on now. This is the last portion from this book that is very important. It's called They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer. The chapter once again is, but then it was too late. Uncertainty is a very important factor, and instead of decreasing as time goes on, it grows. Outside in the street, in the general community, everyone is happy. One hears no protest, and certainly sees none. You know, in France or Italy, there would have been slogans against the government painted on walls and fences. In Germany, outside the great cities, perhaps... 
there is not even this. In the university community, in your own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom certainly feel as you do. But what do you say? They say, it's not so bad, or you're seeing things, or you're an alarmist. And you are an alarmist. You are saying that this must lead to this. And you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes. But how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? And how do you know? Or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party, intimidate you. On the other, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. You are left with your close friends who are naturally people who have always thought as you have. But your friends are fewer now. Some have drifted off somewhere or submerged themselves in their work. Now, in smaller gatherings of your oldest friends, you feel that you are talking to yourselves and that you are isolated from the reality of things. This weakens your confidence still further and serves as a further deterrent to... To what? It is clearer all the time that if you are going to do anything, you must make an occasion to do it. And then you are obviously a troublemaker. So you wait, and you wait. But the one shocking, great shocking occasion, when tens or hundreds or thousands will join you, never comes. That's the difficulty. If the last word and the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and smallest Thousands, yes, millions, would have been sufficiently shocked if, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 43 had come immediately after the German firm stickers on the windows of non-Jewish shops in 33. But of course, this isn't the way it happens. In between come all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. Step C is not so much worse than step B. And if you did not make a stand at step B, why should you at step C? And so on to step D. And one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy and some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. 
The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were born in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed, because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility even to God. The system itself could not have intended this in the beginning. But in order to sustain itself, it was compelled to go all the way. That is the final excerpt I will read from the chapter. But then it was too late from the book. They thought they were free by Milton Mayer. M-A-Y-E-R. Really important book. A chronicle of interviews that Milton Mayer did. I think Milton Mayer was a journalist. And he interviewed these 10 men in Germany who had these ordinary everyday occupations. And they all talk about their experiences living through Germany as it began as Germany, you know, in their time was Germany and then suddenly became Nazi Germany and what their roles were in that, one way or the other. And it's a really important book. So I hope that you got something out of that, um, me reading those excerpts over these last few minutes, because I just think it's something that we've got to be thinking about here as we look at these next nine days. And my whole thing for, for people to consider is, how are you taking these days? Are you taking them one day at a time? Are you just looking ahead to the 20th? Or are you really trying to just do everything you can to try to stay sane, let alone think about nine days from now? We're going to get through these nine days. The question is, how? And even after these nine days, we're going to still have to keep our eyes open. We cannot afford to go to sleep. And as I've said before, we can't do that because we did that during, some of us did that during the Obama administration. And then by the time his administration was ended in that second term, when it was over, we just did not wake up and did not go and vote for Hillary Clinton. I know obviously 66 million of us did. But there was more than 100 million people who stayed at home. And that cannot happen again. And it certainly didn't happen last November or during the election season because a lot more people voted. We went from something like a hundred and what? Roughly 130 million people voting in 2016 in the general election to a hundred and nearly 160 million people voting. So in the 2020 general election. So obviously people have woken up thanks to the Herculean efforts 
of so many people in grassroots and progressive organizations, Stacey Abrams among them. And we've continued to vote. I think more and more people, particularly black people and brown people and Asian people, are recognizing how important it is to vote. And the youth as well, young people as well, are recognizing how important it is to vote. These younger generations now are coming up, and soon many of them, a lot of them are actually coming of age. And they recognize how important it is to vote, not just in the presidential election, but also in these midterms and these runoffs as we saw in Georgia last week. So that is going to be critical for us. We have to weather the storm. And yes, these people will try again to do what they did last week. We need to have robust protections in place, but we also need robust awareness and we need a stronger infrastructure and we need a different infrastructure. We need a different system that recognizes the humanity of black and brown people, that recognizes the humanity of black people. And we need a system that is going to do that. And the present one will not. Believe me, it hasn't. We have had to fight and die to get all the things that we are now taking for granted, including voting. And we are going to have to continue to sustain an ongoing push, which is why we must have an agenda. And we must make it a life-affirming, justice-seeking agenda. And do so right now in preparation for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. As I've said before, Wall Street has already lobbied them. Big Pharma has already lobbied them. And I guarantee you, so has everyone else. So why shouldn't we? We must. Next, the final segment, and it's about the corporate news media. In 60 Minutes in particular. Just a correction, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, 1964. 1964, I had said in the mid-60s that I was almost correct. I said 65, 66, 67, that was 64 as a correction. I apologize for um, the incorrectness, uh, my inaccuracy on that. My apologies. Welcome back. So this final segment is going to be about the corporate news media. And by way of really quick overview, uh, as you know, the media has been deregulated tremendously. 1996, the Telecommunications Act, Bill Clinton, who admitted, oh, I think I may have deregulated too much. And he indeed was correct because we saw overnight in this country, 350 companies controlling the media becoming just five controlling it, a monopoly. And that is never good for the health of any society, for an informed citizenry, and for any notion of democracy. Part of what democracy, small d democracy is, is when people have free choice, have free will, have the ability rather specifically 
to make an informed choice. And if they don't have the options to do that, then we are not living under a democracy. We don't have that when you've got only five companies controlling at 98% pretty much of what you see, hear, and read. That is not a good place for any society to be in or any so-called civilized society to be in. And it is with that. I also add that nine years prior, in 1987, Reagan's fairness doctrine through the FCC, which was stripped away by that agency in that year, also was a critical factor in where we are now in the news media and media-wise. So that now you have a punditocracy, you have less hard news, unless you watch PBS or you watch, uh, or listen rather to NPR, and you now have more entertainment and more opinion journalism, and you have more pundits, you have a pundit class, a a punditocracy, a complex of pundits that is now has now substituted and is substituting for, of course, hard news, which you don't even really get on 60 Minutes anymore. So anyway, that brings me to the fact of this that I had for the last five weeks, and I do this now and again, had not been watching the uh, corporate news media in the United States, at least. I've been watching the corporate news media in the UK, <laughs> Sky News, which is a better alternative. Um, I you know I use that word alternative, which is a better, uh, I think, vehicle. Um, yes, there's things wrong with Sky News too, but calmer presentation of news, a more uh, deliberative and contemplative news, uh, a news that allows for discussion, real discussion. I mean, 10 minutes of discussion between two people who are on, not necessarily as adversaries, sometimes as adversaries, but just talking through issues and revealing and, and supplying information, which you're not getting enough of on CNN and MSNBC and other places. It's all scandalized into tabloid form and format. And that's really bad. This is something Walter Cronkite warned of years ago, just before he passed. And I think I've referred to that before, of how the news would become completely tabloid, tabloidicized. And here we are. And this is the worst time for the news to be tabloidicized, especially now. We cannot have that now. What we need now is cold, blunt, hard news. Nothing else will do. And so, dear listener, it is with that backdrop and background that I say to you that I broke my embargo of five weeks of not watching this news on CNN, MSNBC, and anything like that. Completely broke that yesterday by watching 60 Minutes. Which, while it is not a... Um, CNN or it's not an MSNBC. It's a news magazine show. And I do count that as part of this. So I watched it. There was a segment with the Speaker of the House, Speaker Pelosi, um, that Leslie Stahl did. And I like Leslie Stahl. I met her years ago in New York City. And uh, I thought, I didn't watch all of that segment. I thought it was, what I saw was was compelling. Um, very powerful, actually. So I credit that. I think Leslie Stahl did a good job. Now, I need to watch the whole thing, um, which I DVR'd. But the segment that that really comes to my attention is the segment with independent Senator 
Angus King of Maine. John Wertheim was the reporter who interviewed him. And there was this whole, the whole tenor of that segment was, oh, compromise, compromise, compromise. Oh, the Democrats, can't they just be like those nice, cuddly people in Maine? where you come from? Why can't they bring that to politics in D.C.? Can't everybody just follow those Mainers? (laughs) Can't they just be like Susan Collins, who says that, I think that Donald Trump has learned his lesson. Can't can't they be like that? (laughs) Okay, that last part I'm being facetious on. John Wertheim did not ask Angus King, (laughs) why can't everybody be like Susan Collins? In Maine, because Susan Collins is from Maine. She's a senator in Maine, as you know. She's a Republican. And no, I'm being facetious about that part. But the other part about compromise and will the Democrats um, bring this uh, retributive, this retribution, this retributive atmosphere? Will they be retributionists when they take the Senate? Is that what they're going to do? Listen to this. It's full of compromises. The the U.S. Senate was a product of a compromise. And Senator King has advice for how his colleagues on the left might deal with the 70-plus million Americans who voted for Trump. There's a term I've always liked called eloquent listening. They have to be listened to, and we have to try to understand what's going on. It's cultural and somewhat economic. I mean, it's a very complicated matter, but we can't just dismiss it. Are you concerned that some of your colleagues on the left are going to govern with with an element of, of retribution? That crassly, you know, karma is a you-know-what, and after four years of a president they've reviled and of Republican senators they think have been enabling and an assault on your place of work this week, that uh, this pendulum's going to whip back in the other direction. You, you can't just say, you know, no harm, no foul, and pretend nothing ever happened. On the other hand, to be motivated by retribution or some element of of vengeance or something, I, I don't think that's productive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ignore it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Supreme Court picks blocked and, oh, you know, uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, you know, these traitors on the floor of the Senate who want to overthrow government, overthrow election results, democratically elected Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We want to overthrow that. But, oh, what advice do you have for the Democrats? Will they be retributionists? It's that kind of thing that makes me want to bath. Honestly, it really does. It wants, It makes me want to throw up. It really does. But I've seen that movie before with media who have these talking points from Fox News and, you know, throw those into CBS News or throw those into Democratic presidential debates. That's what I've seen too much of. And it's sickening and it's really pathetic. But that is the news now in America. It's, you've got to be able to compromise. One side has to compromise, the other side has to kill. That is the way it's presented. The Republicans, they can kill, they can block, they can obstruct, they can not seat Supreme Court picks or give them hearings. 
but that's okay. They can advocate for the overthrow of government right there on the Senate floor by refusing to abide by the electoral college of the states that they represent or others. Oh, that's okay. But you Democrats, what advice do you have, Angus King, for your Democratic colleagues? You're an independent, but what advice do you have for them about the issue of compromise? And this, this, is just madness from Angus King. Oh, well, I think we've got to listen. And I mean, why are we listening to people who just killed six people or who are responsible for the deaths of six people at the United States Capitol building last week? The six of them took his own life, apparently, according to published or according to some reports. He was a police officer, the United States Capitol, Capitol building. And these videos over and over and over again of people being killed. Do I need to see those? Do I need to see those? But why, why are we being asked to listen to people who committed a terrorist attack? <laughs> listen to this from Angus King. Listen to this. This part here is the part that I have tweeted out from this program, the video of it, I tweeted out last night. It's on my Twitter feed, at the popcorn, R-E-E-L. This is the part that sent me over the edge. And as for the marauders, I don't sympathize, I don't support, I don't approve, I don't authorize what they did, but I understand it because they had been told by the president, by the media that they listened to, by talk radio for months, going back before the election, that uh, the whole thing was illegitimate. They couldn't trust the courts. They couldn't trust the Congress. They couldn't trust the media. Listen, what Angus King just said there is an absolute out for these violent white men. This is the endorsement of white violence. And I get it. You just heard him say, I don't support it, condone it. I get that. You just heard that. So I played you the context. I didn't play you the soundbite. That was the full context of what Senator King said. But do you understand why that's problematic, to say the very least? Oh, it was because the media, because they were told this and that. And I get it, right-wing hate radio lies like a rug, and the media they listen to lie like a rug. But why is this guy giving us these rationales for white violence? These thugs, these terrorists, damn well near killed, almost killed people in the very Senate that he serves in. If it was not for Eugene Goodman, the black U.S. 
Capitol Police officer who diverted these group of terrorists, this group of terrorists, away from the Senate. He made a quick look to his left and found that the Senate was not secured. If it wasn't for him retreating, no backup, and moving backwards and diverting this mob to follow him up the stairs where they continued to terrorize him, he by himself. And I don't know, he didn't use his gun if he had one. A white cop would probably have pulled that gun out and shot them, especially, well, if they were black, he would have done that or she would have done that. But that man saved lives. Eugene Goodman should be given the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Joe Biden in nine days' time. That should be the first thing he does, along with the coronavirus and economic relief package. And you've got Angus King sitting there. Well, I don't justify it. I don't support it. But I understand it. That's the problem, Senator King. You understand white violence in a society that endorses it, in a society that is white violence. Black people exist in white violence daily on all kinds of levels, as do brown people. But I understand it. You don't understand, though, do you? Do you understand Saudi hijackers? flying into buildings on September 11, 2001. Do you understand that kind of violence? Do you understand why they did it? No, I don't think you do. You don't understand that, though. Does Senator King understand that? Will he provide an understanding of why 19 or 17 Saudi hijackers or 18 with one from another country flew jets into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon and we're heading for the White House and all these other places. Does he understand that? Is he prepared to go on the TVs on 60 Minutes to John Wertheim or anyone else and explain to us all, dear wise one, his understanding of their violence and their terror attack Is he prepared? Is the distinguished gentleman from Maine prepared to do that on TV in front of us all? Is he prepared to say that he understands self-defense when it's black people engaging in self-defense? Is he prepared to say he understands that? You know the answer. And that's all part of this rationalizing white violence. Oh, but the media told them this. Oh, but they were drunk. Oh, but they had a bad day. Remember what I said just a few episodes ago about Mia Ponsetto? the Vietnamese slash Puerto Rican who, 22 years old, jumped on, assaulted, attacked 
basically molested, let's be honest, a 14-year-old boy. Jumped on him, attacked him, tackled him. Where's my phone? He's got my phone. 14-year-old boy, black boy, 14. And remember what I said? That the lawyer that she has was engaging in the same kind of language of justification and racism. Oh, she had a bad day. She was feeling isolated and alone and unsupported. This justification, this, oh, I understand. She's since come out, by the way, and said that her client was really, did a really bad thing and it was really stupid of her to act like this in an interview with another CBS outlet, CBS This Morning and Gail King. You know, but that's, that's for another day. My point is, is that the system of whiteness and the person in question doesn't even have to be white. It could be a Mia Ponsetta. Mia Ponsetta being Vietnamese slash Puerto Rican. And justifying or explaining away or I understand. She had a bad day. You had a bad day. You know, it's just, yeah. But, you know, black people have bad days, but they don't go around by and large, right? We don't go around um, accusing people of stealing our cell phones and jumping on them and telling them and telling hotel managers, go get them, go get them, go get her. She's got my phone. We don't call the cops on white people at random and say, hey, look, you know, this person, that person, that white person, they just stole my uh, my wallet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? Think about that. But when a white person or someone does this against a black person, it's, well, they had a bad day. Oh, well, the media lied to them. Oh, well... And these are people committing violent acts. Whether it's a 22-year-old woman, or in this case, far, far more deadly, these violent, terrorist, thuggish white men who destroyed parts of the U.S. Capitol in a terrorist attack, in an organized, well-financed terrorist attack, endorsed an undersigned and participated in by politicians, including a congressperson in his state who was arrested. And to all of that, with six people killed as a result of what these terrorists did last week. Into the breach steps Senator Angus King of Maine, independent. Well, I understand it. I understand it. You understand their violence. You understand the terrorist attack. Really? You should be removed from office for saying that stupid shit alone. Because that's exactly what it is. But it's perfectly expected. It's to be expected in a society that does not value black life and rationalizes away white Violence, especially white male violence, it is always coddled, glorified, played on a loop in the case of white police officers killing black people. And now played on a loop with 
these videos showing you moments where police officers, be they white or black, in this case white, being killed by white men. Let's just keep playing that on a loop for America. Isn't that just a wonderful idea? Oh, but I'm a senator and I understand why they did this. How perverse. I'm John Wertheim sitting there. Oh, and what about the marauders? These are not marauders, John. These are terrorists. And your report did not say that once. Shame on you. And now I go back to my embargo of the corporate news media in this country because it is a disgraceful media. There are some good people in places who do good jobs, but it's things like this from CBS 60 Minutes and John Wertheim that absolutely remind me at least that there are better media out there. Believe me, there are. PBS, try it. C-SPAN, try it. C-SPAN isn't perfect with those wackadoodle callers and they let people say what they want. I mean, anything. Stuff that's just not true. Stuff that's incendiary. You know. Like death threats, basically, on the air. We should only have one political party on this in this country. One caller said last year. I heard him. I heard him loud and clear say that. There should only be one party in this country and we should get rid of the other one. And he was very specific because he named the party that should be gotten rid of. I'm not going to repeat it. I think you can use your imagination in this climate to figure out which party he said. And into that breach steps Senator King well, I understand it. That's where the media is in this country now, thanks to Reagan and Clinton. And right now, the media, in my view, I don't have to watch it. It's failing. I know it is. It's failing. The reporters might not be failing. The people who do their jobs out there, raising the critical questions, asking the questions that need to be asked, and risk their own lives... They're not failing. It's the people who run these networks who are. And their agendas are not healthy for us. We need to create our own media in response. We need to listen to better sources of information. C-SPAN, while not perfect, is better. And it is less passionate. It is less partisan. It is not partisan, largely. NPR is far from perfect these days, but it's still better than most. PBS, Sky News, which I watch in the UK, available on YouTube 24 hours a day, seven days a week, free of charge, covers the world, global perspective. Yes, it does cover the, cover the US on occasion, but this, this is a much better, better, better source of news, even with the fact that it is owned by an American company, Comcast which has been funding some of these horrible politicians who should be removed. But I'm telling you, Free Speech TV, Joe Madison's show on Sirius XM, Roland Martin Unfiltered, I've told you about all the time, Karen Hunter, all of these are better alternatives. 
And I hate the word alternative, given what I said about that word the other day. But these are better choices, I should say. Randy Rhodes, Free Speech TV, Tom Hartman, better choices. You get to think, you get to get new information that you're not getting from the places you normally listen to or watch. That's what we have to do in 2021. We have to be clear. And instead of all the both sides-isms that all the corporate news media does and the equivocation, the rationalizations, the understanding of white violence, it's never, it's never condemned, really, is it? And even when they condemn it, they can't say terrorist. I mean, I know there have been people like Joe Biden and some Republican senators and some Democratic politicians who have used the word terrorism and they've used the word domestic in front of it. But I think it's terrorism, period. I don't need to put the word domestic in front of it. It's clear where it happened. It happened here. So, yeah, it's kind of redundant, I think, to say the word domestic. Terrorism is terrorism, folks. It is not, ooh, there's terrorists over here and then there's domestic ones. Like, that makes it any different or better. They are terrorists. And very few of these thugs and violent, murdering people are walking around telling their friends today, the ones that have not yet been arrested, well, I committed domestic terrorism today. <laughs> you get my point, folks. We have to all be better. They in the media have to be better. No, the media is not the enemy of the American people. What the media is, is at times in the hands of those who are in the newsrooms, in these lily white root newsrooms, 98% white newsrooms. What they are doing is a profound danger and disservice to us because they are framing things in these ways that only serve to protect their own interests, much less anything else, while leaving our interest as we the people at the side of the road. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. <laughs>